Well, this is our fourth week of looking at the Christian family, and we've considered the definition of marriage. First of all, we considered singleness in marriage. And so now today we're going to be looking at love, a little bit on communication, but largely, predominantly on love. What love is, what it looks like, especially applied in marriage. And so, quick, def- quick uh, review, definition of marriage. Give me some elements. Man and woman. Thank you. Yes. It's a covenant. It's a, okay, good. Covenant. Man and woman. Leave and cleave. Leave and cleave. So we leave this family. We start a new family. A man and his wife. United by covenant. Anything else? Yes. Fidelity. Okay. For a lifetime, right? Exclusively for a lifetime. Now. All sorts of failures in the Old Testament, and it was so bad, God overlooked several things. <laughs> like polygamy. That doesn't mean that was the way it was from the beginning, right? He said, Jesus taught us that. He says the law of Moses allowed right divorce, but it was not that way from the beginning. So our rule as Christians, under the new covenant, under the lordship of Jesus Christ, is not to go, well, Moses said this, or Abraham did that. Therefore, I get to do X. We follow what was established in the beginning. That's our, that's our role. And Paul does the same thing in 1 Timothy, 1 Corinthians. Good. Anything else we're missing? One flesh. Yes, the one flesh relationship. Which is necessary for marriage. It consummates the marriage, we say. It is, it is essential a one flesh relationship. They are no longer two, but are one. And so, symbolized in the kiss, the whole marriage ceremony is really neat, how there's a leaving father and mother, the, the groom's already left, uh, hus- you know, the father of the bride, you know, hands, hands over the, the bride, and then they exchange vows, they make a covenant before God and witnesses, it's a public transaction. And uh, this kiss symbolizes then the physical union, which is essential. And so, all that, uh, is, uh, all that is a blessing. It's God's design. This is Genesis 2. Last week, we saw sphere sovereignty and that the home, the family, government, and church all have a role in society. And uh, there's various applications of that, really interesting applications of that. I really think Martin Luther was insightful when he said that the sword is in the government's hand when you steal, and you might say the sword of the Spirit is in the church's hand to encourage you to give. (laughs) That the government is not there to say you need to give X, Y, this amount, but that's the role of the church is to be part of what the conscience, saying God expects this of you, if you have extra you should give, And the community that believes in this should rally around and shame you if you don't. There should be a sense of shame. And just as there's a sense of blessing in Bethlehem when Boaz steps forward and Mr. So-and-so, Poloni Almoni, gets shamed for not stepping forward. And so there's a role for each to play in these things. There is a role uh, when it comes to marriage as well. The question was asked last week and I said I would give it a little more thought on how about like private marriages, you know, where there's like keep the government out. 
And, uh, you know, I, I was thinking about that. It's like there's no such thing. I think, as I mentioned, the Reformation, there was actually secret marriages claimed to be secret marriages going on, and the Reformers and the Protestants really pushed against that because the covenant involves witnesses. The covenant is done before God and these witnesses. And so you would set up a stone. You would, you know, like it would be something that was public. And so it's a public thing. Why would the government be involved? Because take the coin and whose image is on it, right? Take a dollar bill. Since inflation is around, I'll take a $5 bill. <laughs> and who's, who's, you know, whose image is on it? Right? It's not me. Happens to be a leader of our country. And so when money is involved, if money is driving the secrecy of the wedding, it is claiming that the government doesn't have a role involved in money. And I would say that that would be breaking the the sphere that God has assigned for government. So that's my answer. If others have better answers, may the theologians weigh in. And uh, may God weigh in, but I think uh, that, would be, that would be disobedience uh, to the servant that God has set up. That's my opinion. So, let's move on to this topic today. Let's move on to love. And uh, since this is a relationship, it is a union, it is a relationship by covenant, it is now one flesh relationship, so it is no longer two, one of the most Amazing statements of Jesus, drawing from Genesis, no longer is a huge statement. So, with that in mind, it needs, as all relationships do, love. Because love is the perfect bond of unity. And so, love comes from the heart. And this is where we need to be reminded. No amount of discipline, no amount of etching and chiseling, No amount of self-imposed discipline, habits imposed upon you, willpower is going to create a loving heart inside of you. You're not going to get there. I remember, uh, what was it? uh, Paul Tripp talked about stapling fruit to a tree. (laughs) You know, the tree is still bad, but we want it to bear fruit. And so we're going to go out and staple apples to the branches And, uh, you know, impose it from the outside in. It's not going to happen. We need, as Jesus said, and Jesus was very plain, you either make the tree good and its fruit will be good, you make the tree bad and its fruit will be bad, the tree is known by its fruit. And so a bad tree does not produce good fruit and a good tree does not produce bad fruit. Do not marvel when I say to you, you must be born again. Every one of us needs a new heart. God has to give us a new heart. And once the heart comes, Jesus said, make the inside of the cup clean, the outside will be clean as well. What a marvel. What a praise that you just clean up the fountain and good water comes out of it. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of, he uses simple analogies because it's a straightforward teaching that we must be born again. We need a new heart. And that is old teaching. According to Jesus, he says Nicodemus should have known about this. This is not like revealing things from the heavens. 
This is things that are known on earth. And John, the writer of that story, in his letter, 1 John, goes all the way back to the fourth chapter of Genesis and says it's right in the Cain and Abel story. Cain is of the evil one. And Abel did what was right. He's of God. Everyone who does what is right has been born of God, 1 John 2.28 or 29. And so, all the way back to the beginning, two kinds of humanities, the seed of the woman, the seed of the serpent, you're born of God or you're a child of the devil and need to be transferred from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. So, we need a new heart, we need a new tree so that I can be loving. And this is where we have participation. What is love? And this is, I'm just going to write down what you tell me. I'm going to put up here, so go ahead. God is love. Sacrifice. Sacrifice. Fulfillment of the law. Okay. Love is love. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to argue against that. But Love is a verb. Yes. Bodhi's definition is an act of the will accompanied by emotion that leads to action on behalf of its object. An act of the will accompanied by emotion. Am I right on that? Yep. Leads to action on behalf of its object. That leads to action on behalf of its object. B, B. Body Bakum. Okay. Yes, Olivia. I think it's kind of imitation of the Trinity because the Father and the Son love each other. Okay, imitation of the Trinity. Because the Father and the Son love each other. It is a marvel. It is an absolute... Uh, there's this a whole truth right here that God is not one person. That eternally outside of time are three persons. That's what makes God love. God was never lonely. He didn't have to love himself until you showed up. He always is loving. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Spirit. I mean, the Son loves the Father and the Spirit in sense expresses, embodies that love. He is that love in a sense. So amazing. Okay, that's a whole nother lesson. And, uh, but this is quite a list. We could go on, right? 1 Corinthians 13. Everybody turn in that passage and let's actually see what Paul says are elements of this love. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. How many of you have a plaque at home with something of this chapter on it? Hanging up somewhere. Several of you, okay. First Corinthians thirteen. Okay, lean over to your neighbor, starting in verse four, and pick out two of your favorites from verse four through verse seven or eight. 
Okay. All in favor, there's a lot of verbing going on there. Okay? A lot of things it doesn't do, right? There's things it does do, things it doesn't do. The first two are really interesting because one is passive. Love suffers long. So long fuse, puts up with a lot, patient. That's things done to me and I just bear it. And there's other ones like bears all things, love never fails. There's a lot of that in there. And then conversely, there's, there's activity with the word kindness. Love is kind. Love would be giving. Love would, you know, it's forgiving. It doesn't take wrongs into account. Right? It rejoices in what is right. It doesn't take pleasure. Rejoice in what is wrong. So love fulfills the law because love does not rejoice in what is wrong it does not take pleasure in harming you. So if I love you, I may be mistaken in my judgment and inadvertently harm you because love takes discernment as well, but my motives are not to. And rightly taught, I will not harm you. Romans 13 says, love fulfills the law. If I love you, I will do what the commandments say. In fact, Jesus said, if I love I love my, my God and I love my neighbor. The entire law and the prophets will be fulfilled. It all hangs on that. And so this is huge. So love fulfills the law. Love will sacrifice whatever it takes. It does not seek its own. It puts others first. It is definitely an act of the will in that it is not proud, self-seeking, it bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, love never fails. It is a commitment. Yes? Um, one of the ones I've always been confused about is when it says it believes all things. What does that mean? I think it does not mean believes in a person. What I think it actually means is believes everything God says, love believes, and love hopes. And these three remain, faith, hope, and love. So if you have love... It means you have faith and you have hope. Now, that would be one interpretation. Others are, and it wouldn't be wrong or a stretch to say charitable, you know, a charitable outlook on people because it's not critical, um, not a critical spirit. But I think I, I lean that direction more than the other in that believes all things that God would say and it hopes in all things that God has promised. And as a result, it doesn't fail. So, okay, now, let's reverse it. If somebody is kind to you, how certain are you that they love you? Oh, okay. Okay, why, why do I have some shaking of the head? If somebody's kind to you, how certain are you that they love you? Why, why are we not... 100% certain on that. Okay, so the world is, is out there teaching, society's out there teaching. Good, Olivia? Because someone could do a kind thing to you without actually loving you. They could do it for a different reason. Okay. 
So there could be a different reason for why they love you, a different motive, or why they're being kind to you, right? Can we think of some way? What would be an example of somebody doing kind, a kind thing to you, but their motive is not loving? Look. Well, maybe they don't love you, but they, love, they, they still like society's rules and social mores, and they don't want to be an outcast. So society says be polite to people, and so you're polite to people even if you don't like them. And praise the Lord, there is society pressure to do some things good. <laughs> or we would end up, you know, in the wild, wild west or outside Eden with Cain doing whatever he wants to do, right? I mean, it's like, there is, it is a blessing. God has tied us together and put society pressures of some sort on us to act at least, notice our words, civilly is from the Roman word for city and politely is from the Greek word for city. When you put a lot of people together, if they're going to get along, they have to act a certain way. They have to act civilly and politely, city-wise. If they're out in the rural areas, <laughs> the bunnies aren't going to care. You know, it's like, it's kind of like that. So in, in close quarters, though, there's certain things in order to get along. Advertising, gifts that show up in the mail, free trips, acts of kindness from whatever entity, maybe even political entity, promises and elections. There's a variety of things, right, that could be done like bribing. I give you a gift. I'm expecting a payback. You owe me one. So, kindness. How about sacrifice? If somebody laid down their life for you, does that automatically mean they love you? Okay, what would be what would be the a reason that would say? Well, I guess it would depend on what we're defi- how we're defining laying down life. I guess in the typical sense we think of as physically like dying. That's what I meant, and but yeah, I mean, ungodly people give their lives for their country all the time. Wouldn't wouldn't they wouldn't they love their country then? <clears throat> so they gave their life for their country because they love their country. Yeah, there is an honor associated. with Okay. Okay. Or they were drafted and they had to do it, right? Maybe they, maybe the consequences would be too great, and so they love themselves too much. They couldn't live with themselves. Okay, so even, even a serious thing like, I think Pascal said, even those who take their lives do it because they love themselves. Because it's better to die than to live. And they're thinking of what is... Now, different circumstances, very touchy subject, don't want to go deep into that because of its sensitive nature. Um, especially with today's medications, people can do all, odd things. But 
I think we're all in agreement. We can do some very big things and still, and still not be loving. Look at verses 1 to 3 of this chapter. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And if I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, notice we just hit on the big ones there. If I gave away all that I have, and if I gave, delivered up my body to be burned and had not love, I gained nothing. So Paul pictures a situation where somebody could be very giving to the extent they gave all their possessions, very sacrificial in that they gave their body to be burned, but not, not have love. And so this is where it gets really challenging. It's like, what is love then? In fact, what's odd about this passage is love is something you have. So, some of you, I, correct me if I'm wrong. I, I'm trying to go off of memory. If you're good at logic, correct me. Is this modens ponens? This is like, uh, you know, P implies Q, P exists, therefore Q exists. Am I getting the right name on that? Okay, good. So, if P, then Q. If it rains on Saturday, then we cancel the picnic. Okay, simple logic statement. I wake up Saturday morning, pouring buckets, rain all over the place. I go, I guess the picnic's going to be canceled. But the picnic is canceled if Q. Does that mean it's raining outside? It could be COVID. (laughs) (laughs) Or some other, or ant-infested park or something, you know. It's like, we're not going to have a picnic today, guys, because could be a lot of reasons why the picnic got canceled on Saturday. So, just because if I have love, I will be kind, doesn't mean if I'm kind, therefore I have love. That is a logical fallacy. I cannot assume that. If I have love, I will lay down my life for you. You will be greater. You will be more valuable than me. I will lay, but if I lay down my life, that does not necessarily mean I have love. Isn't that interesting? So that if I, if I see certain things, certain you know, actions, certain sacrifices, certain sufferings, certain act, activities, I cannot automatically assume that the heart is loving behind it. Love is something deeper than just mere actions. Okay? Thank you, Jonathan. So love is something deeper than actions. Love is something that we have that leads to then these other things. And I, even, even this big definition here, 
An act of the will accompanied by emotion that leads to action is involving a, an internal thing. It's better because it's not just defining it as an action. It's interesting. I wonder if act is still the best way to describe it or if it's something that I have, something that I am versus something that I do. And so let's just keep pressing this a little bit. Um, by the way, how many of you know the, the five love languages? Um, this makes for a great date night. So, right, Gary Chapman, this is a book that we use for premarital counseling, Things I Wish I'd Known Before We Got Married. It's an interesting little list of things. I'm just going to read a little bit. Um, that that I was marrying into a family. Um, that we needed a plan for handling our money. That toilets are not self-cleaning. <laughs> that romance has... Two stages, the tinglys and then real love, okay, after you get past the honeymoon. <laughs> so he's got the five love languages, all right? So let's see if we can name them. Pop quiz. Okay, acts of service, physical touch, quality time, gifts, words of affirmation. Okay, now let's apply the P implies Q. If I give you words of affirmation, does that mean I love you? No. If I do acts of service, does that mean I love you? No. If I spend quality time with you, does that mean I love you? No. If I have physical touch, does that mean I love you? No. And what was the one I'm missing? Yes. <laughs> gifts. If I give you gifts, does that mean I love you? No. If I love you... We just saw, I'm going to do a lot of those things, if not all of them, right? I will show them. And so, it takes it that people value one more than the other. And in fact, the Bible talks about our expression of love is rooted to our roles. We'll have to look at this in a future week. Role of a husband, role of a, of a wife. Let's take role of a father, role of a son. In the Gospel of John... If you are a father, chapter 3 says that you give all things to your son. If you are a father, chapter 5 says you show all things to your son. A father's love for his son is expressed most naturally through gifts and involving him or her in what he's doing. So that's, that's a father's love. Hey, kids, come with me. I got to show you something. You know, run off and... Let me show you, let me teach you this, involve you in this. So, giving and showing. But, according to Jesus, a son's love to a father is expressed in the desire to please, especially through obedience, that he pleases the father in all things. And so, a, a son's desire is to make their dad happy, if they really love their dad. And so, I want to make him happy. I want to please him. If you reversed it, don't reverse it. <laughs> the father's chief goal is not to make their son happy. Now, you follow me? That's like, it's not the proper expression of love for that relationship. Every relationship has proper expressions of love. Friendship, 
citizenship, other things. There's proper expressions of love, love to one's neighbor and such. So I think expressing love and having love languages is a good thing. And I think if you were to go into scripture, we could probably find all of them there for what we need to do if we love others. But the point being is that just because I'm doing all these things and communicating these things, this is my love language to you, I'm communicating to this, might not be that I actually love you. I might be lying. My actions may be deceptive. They might not be telling the truth. Does that make sense? The power of duty, the power of social custom, the power of other gains is amazing to cause people to do things that outwardly would be right. It's quite amazing. A strong training in, in, in like virtue and different things can so stamp a conscience that the individual couldn't live with themselves if they didn't do it. And so they have to, not because they really want to, but because they're forced to. It will be too painful if they don't. We can even be that way. Okay, any questions at this point? All right. I wish this book had a cover. It doesn't. It's C.S. Lewis, uh, The Four Loves. How many have read this little book? Okay, several of you have, a few of you have. Um, I'm really impressed, actually, by this book. Not because I think the Greeks had it right, um, but as far as explanation goes and understanding human, human relationships, C.S. Lewis's uh, little book on these loves is really insightful in a lot of different ways. And uh, so I went through it last night, just kind of reviewed it so I'd be fresh in my mind um, today because he gives us what is natural. This is coming out of classical times. This is like back in the Greco-Roman era. What could people do without being born again? What is instinctive? What can we do by nature that is actually loving? And by nature, I mean without the Holy Spirit making us alive. The first thing is we can love things, which he says is grammatically incorrect. Maybe some people have been chastened on that, and you shouldn't say I love pizza because it's an impersonal object. But we do talk about things that we really find pleasurable. We love them. I love to ski. I love, you know, dessert. I love Saturday night, whatever it is. So the likes speak of pleasure. But now we go into the words that are used in the Greek for love. And the first one is storge, which means affection. And so, this is, the, this is the, the love of family. Primarily, it is the love of its maternal instinct. Um, the love that, I mean, I was sitting next to this morning, uh, a family, one of our families with young kids, and I was, I was very tempted to interrupt my wife's concentration in worship with cute alert. Uh, there was a very cute alert going on just two doors down. <laughs> with a very little cute baby. And uh, just the instincts that are in us to just cherish a child, to cherish a family member, to kiss. 
The KISS family members, we express our love romantically with a kiss, but we express family love with a kiss. You know, we just kiss, 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 kiss. I just love you, love you, love you, love you. You know, it's like a little bundle of them. And of course, then they turn into this little rascal at some point. You know, it's like, and it's a tug of war toss. I love you, but you frustrate me so much. And, you know, there's this, it's familiar things. So C.S. Lewis describes, it's like, it didn't be anybody, just somebody get used to. The, the janitor at school, we just love the old guy. He's been there for 15 years, and he's now the old guy. Not that he's all that lovable, but he's just part of the, part of the family. He's just kind of there, and we love him. You know, So it's that kind of love. It's a very natural, instinctive kind of love. The second one is the love of friendship. I'm not sure if I agree with, with his uh, definition of it because he goes beyond companionship, beyond the clubbishness of we're all on the same team. The good feels about essentially saying a friend, what makes friendships is a common interest. So they don't look at each other and look into each other's eyes all starry-eyed. That's Eros, he says. But it's like they look at a common interest. So I, I picture growing up after a football game where I was on, you know, played football, and my dad and my uncle, they were total fans. And they would go blow by blow through the whole football game. You know, like this pass and this run and this guy's missed tackle and why did the coach do that? It was so much fun for them to replay the entire game. That's friendship. You know, whatever it may be that you like, you enjoy together. If we use the biblical definition, according to John 15... And Proverbs, using Proverbs, a friend loves at all times. There is somebody, a friend that sticks closer to a brother. Friendship speaks of loyalty through thick and thin. And according to Jesus, in John 15, not only does it speak of sacrifice, but it also speaks of confiding. He says, no longer do I call you slaves, for a slave does not know what his master is doing, but I call you friends. A friend opens up. We see this with Genesis 18. Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? That's why Abraham's called the friend of God. Like God actually shares his plans with this guy. Or like Moses, he speaks with him as a man speaks with his friend, face to face, as it were. This is the kind of like, what does friendship mean? Friendship means I'm going to tell you some things of deep hurts, and dreams and fears that I don't share with anybody else, or very few. I guard that pretty close, but I count you as a friend, and I bring you into that inner circle. Okay, that, biblically, Old and New Testament would count as a friend. And so friendship is a big deal. It's philia. And again, interestingly, that's the same word for kiss. Because in Jewish society, you would greet everybody with a kiss. Mark it, it's a holy kiss, but it's a kiss. I would think on the cheek, because you're supposed to turn the other cheek. If you offered, a, offered friendship, that's what you're doing. You're offering friendship with this cheek, and somebody hits you. Jesus says, offer them the other cheek. Give them another opportunity to be your friend. It's a remarkable statement, because it's opening you up to be hit again. And so, but Judas, right? Judas betrayed Jesus with a kiss because he was part of the inner circle, the trusted bunch. 
And so it's a sign of friendship, is a kiss. Interestingly, they all have love with regard to a kiss. You know, there's like love involved. The next one is eros. I'm going to use the Greek word. It is never used in the New Testament. We get erotic from it. It is interesting to me that it is not a word used. Lewis explains it often involves sexual relations, but doesn't have to. In fact, he says, and I can, I've, I've, in working with young adults, I've actually seen this play out. If this shows up and a strong attachment between one person and their beloved is so strong, it can actually decrease sexual desire because they're so preoccupied with the person. This is where they're so locked into the other person's eyes, they don't unglue. And they just, all friends fade, all interests fade. I experienced it when I was like, you know, fall of 1989. I was sitting in a real analysis class. It was, you know, Dr. Unger. He was from Israel, Tel Aviv. His family was there. And he was teaching supposedly all the proofs for calculus. But Bob Snyder was writing J-I-N-N-A, J-I-N-N-A, all over my notebooks. I was captivated by this young woman, so much so that I actually broke up with her. Because I was like, nobody should be this enamored with anybody else. Only Jesus deserves this kind of focus. i got to break up with her. And then I asked her to marry me about two weeks later. It's a weird kind of thing, all right? It's a, it's a, it's a, it is a thing. And it makes me wonder, does Song of Songs refer to this kind of love or not? That's a future lesson. We've got to really explore into that and weigh into it. Because Song of Songs actually uses, in the Greek translation, agape, not eros. And I wonder how significant that is. I need to do a little more research and looking into that to find out. Uh, to actually get at it, because it could point to that Eros may actually be very, very, very self-driven in that I really want you, but not in the way like I am my beloved's and his desire is for me, like Song of Songs, but it might be something more like, like really you know, possessive, you might say. I don't know. I want to look into that a little bit more. Fifth, or the fourth one, is Agape. And he treats it as charity. All of these he puts under the rubric of need love versus gift love. Taken from classical times, need love. A child needs their parents. And so they feed, her, they feed the child, they care for the child. I just love you so much. Sometimes, <laughs> but a lot of times. I love you, Mom. Love you, Dad. Hug, hug, hug. You know, run to you, right? There's a need involved in this. And then the gift love. I give, I give, I give. I love you, I love you, I love you, and I give. And Lewis is like not pleased with, does this really capture everything? When he gets to charity, he thinks, how does this work in charity where charity is like, is big-hearted, you know, it's like, it's bigger. So, in need love, I can accept gifts from you, but not in a self-driven way. I can accept it knowing it gives you joy. 
knowing that it fulfills, like there's something where I involve the good of you in it. Or in gift love, not in a sense like I'm the soul giver and I'm superior, but maybe there's some kind of like sharing. I forget what he was getting at with that, but he's trying to like, wait a minute, is this really getting at all that love is? And he throws out a teaser in the first chapter and then closes his book down in the last chapter saying, I don't know if I know this love, but there seems to be a love called appreciative love. This love, he takes from pleasure. In pleasure, we have need pleasure. I'm thirsty, I need water right now. But if I'm sated and I've drank a lot, I don't have the same pleasure with a glass of water. But there's other things that have a natural pleasure that just stays, which I find delightful. In other words, there's something intrinsically lovely in it, and that's why I love it. That's different than I'm going to give you a gift because I see you have a need, or you're going to give me a gift because I have a need. What if there's another kind of love that's not need-driven, but is prompted by something else? John Owen and probably others commented in the, from the New Testament, I think using old categories, there's something called, John Owen the Puritan called benevolent love, that God loves his enemies. And this is found in Matthew 5, 44 to 45. Or that God loves his son. Matthew three seventeen. Okay. Quiz yourself. Why does God love his son? What did he say at the baptism? This is my beloved son. Beloved, right? I love him. In whom I am well pleased. Like, I love him. I'm so pleased. There's just something delightful. Now, does God love his enemies that way? See, look down from heaven and go, Adolf, I just love you so much. There's something different, right? He, the sun shone on beautiful days like this in Germany in the 1940s on Adolf Hitler. And that's the example Jesus gives. The sun rises on the wicked and the righteous. (laughs) They get to enjoy the blue sky days just like believers in Jesus. But it doesn't mean that God's like, oh, I just find great delight in you. There's something different about this find great delight in you. You follow me? So, let's go to then the next, the next book, and that's, uh, this is show and tell day. The Marriage Builder. We use this in premarital counseling. And so, it's by Larry Crabb. He was kind of big in the 1990s. And as a, a Christian counselor. And he describes lots of things in this book about how relationships happen. It's one of those books, you know, when you read these books, you go like, how many hours did this person log in on just counseling? Because after a while, you start to see patterns in people. They show up. 
patterns show up. And these guys are very good at showing the patterns. The one that really stuck with me was, my spouse needs to change. Oh, really? Oh, you don't even know the half of it. You know, and so, and I keep trying to work on him. I work on her. And I get such resistance. Oh. <laughs> so, so I double down my efforts. <laughs> you know, it's like, I put Bible verses everywhere. You know, or I like, I like constantly remind, would you pick that up? And then walls go up. Walls. And then the manipulative efforts go even deeper. The guilt tripping. The strategic reminders. <laughs> the use of other people. <laughs> Pastor, would you pray for us? And then there's like a 20-minute prayer request <laughs> of describing maybe at prayer meetings, you know, and different things. And so it's like all this pressure, 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 pressure. And then... He describes walls, 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 and the relationship goes farther and farther apart because this is not working. And so now we're in the counseling session trying to figure out how did we get to this point. So he describes the difference between ministry, where I see my spouse needs changing, and I'm going to pray for them and serve them. I desire them to, to experience God's goodness. Versus manipulation, which is me-driven, and I can't stand that they do that, and so I'm going to keep forcing it. This looks at the needs of my spouse. This looks at my own needs. So this is very self-driven. This is love-driven. And ministry says, you have needs, honey, and I'm here to meet your needs. Whatever they may be, time, affirmation, acts of service, all those things. I'm here to meet your needs. I want to be kind to you. That's the meeting of needs, being kind. I'm going to be kind to you. So this dynamic is broken up, he says, ultimately, through finding security in Christ so that I have a spirit oneness, which is vertically driven, where my relationship with God is so strong and I'm so close to God, I know he's going to meet my needs so I don't have to manipulate my spouse to meet my needs or expect that my spouse is supposed to meet all my needs, which crushes the other. And so I know God alone can meet my needs and I'm looking to him to meet my needs and as a result, I have released my spouse, I am no longer putting the pressure on I am able now freely to serve without expectations, without setting goals that get broken. Yes, I desire it. I would like it. But there's no pressure, no goals. Do this or else. No ultimatums. No timeline. And so I'm here to love you as a friend would love a friend. And of course, Crab says, if this happens, that my vertical relationship with God is secured and I find security in Christ and significance in being his child, then I'm able, I'm freed up, because I'm not expecting to gain that identity, that recognition, those needs to be met from my spouse. I'm freed up then to serve, to serve freely. And if that is reciprocated by both partners, then this leads to a body oneness, 
where there's actually a feeling of closeness that would be rightly expressed bodily through physical oneness. Otherwise, the physical oneness ends up picturing a lie. You two look like you're close together, but relationally you're miles apart. And so this is actually, there's a lot to be said for this. I like this. I like this sequence and I really like it because of faith, hope, and love. If I believe that Jesus is enough for me and his promises are true, I can wake up in the morning and say, this is going to be a good day because I have hope for this day. No matter what my spouse says or does, Jesus is Lord of this day. I'm hopeful today. And I know he's going to be with me to give me the love that I need to live with this difficult situation or difficult person. So I have a hopefulness, which is joy and peace, according to Romans 15, 13. I have a joy and a peace in my life. That then sets up love, because love believes all things and hopes all things. If I don't have that faith and don't have that hope, I'm not truly loving. I'm looking for somebody else to meet my needs and for it to come in some other quarters. And so the pressure is on, and I'm love is no longer there because I'm seeking my own. Okay, does everybody track with me? Did I lose somebody in the weeds? Okay. I think Crabb has a lot to say on this, and his dynamics, there's a lot more in the book than just this. He role plays and goes through all sorts of pictures, scenarios, and different things on how to work through this. All this is based on... Well, let me, let me do a little demonstration here first. Okay. All right. I'm, I'm really tempted to have like, somebody come up here. I think we'll, we'll skip that. Okay? Imagine I'm at the dinner table. Maybe, you know, you and your spouse, and you call, you know, Pastor, will you get over here? We are not getting along. We need some help. So I show up, and it's tense. I mean, it's just tense. You know, the kids have scurried off into the quarters. It's tense. I don't know. You know, so like here, I come to the table, and I have a seat. It's like, oh, wow. You guys are having difficulties, aren't you? And I listen for a while and go back, what's going on here? And this is, this and she's doing this, and he's doing this, and she doesn't respond, and, he's, and it's just back, forth, back, forth. Okay, okay. I take out my scissors, which never leave home without them. And I cut between the two of them. And I say, we're going to practice our R's right now. The first R is responsibility. Let's take responsibility for our half of what's going on here. By this I mean, nobody makes you angry. We often say that. You know that makes me angry. You know, and you always make me so angry. Well, nobody actually makes us angry. They tempt us, they provoke us, they poke and they poke and they poke and they poke and they poke, and it can genuinely hurt. I'm not saying it can't hurt. Words hurt, but the response is from ourselves. And so it was a little booklet 
this experienced counselor showed up at a neighboring church and I was invited and I picked this little booklet up. You can get it for about a buck fifty off of Back to the Radio Broadcasting or something off their website by Alan Peterson. It's called Your Reactions Are Showing. And I learned from that little book that nobody makes me angry. I choose to be angry. And so that's liberating. Like, my emotions are not at the whim of somebody else. I can live before God above these things through grace, through faith. And so, I'm not saying it's not real suffering. Read Psalm 69. Read the Messiah and his sufferings. It's real suffering. But we can walk through those waters, Psalm 69. We can get to the other side. And so, first thing is, we get our scissors out and we say, look, you need to take ownership of your anger and you need to take ownership of your anger. The fact that you're angry right now, and by the way, we have code words for anger. I'm not angry, I'm just frustrated. I'm annoyed. I'm irritated. I'm perturbed. We got a whole list of these, okay? You know, but I'm not angry though, okay? There's bitterness. That's anger too. You know, there's like the slow burn. There's like the, the friendly smile with the veneer over it. You know, it's like there's all sorts of forms of anger. And the Bible says, put them all away, Ephesians says. Put them all away. When you put on Christ, you need to put these all away and get a tender heart, be kind and forgiving is your disposition. Now, whether you forgive or not may depend on certain situations, but that's for another day too. But just be cautious. You need to at least have a soft heart. Tenderheartedness and a willingness to forgive is something you are responsible for, Mrs. So-and-so, and and you are responsible for Mr. So-and-so. That is your responsibility before God. Can we all agree on that? That's our first step. Normally, you can't do that on the spot. I can't do that on the spot. The psalmist couldn't do that on the spot. And that means that the Messiah, it seems like, didn't do it on the spot. Jesus, being human, would go to the Father, often slip into the wilderness to pray, Luke says. And so that's insightful. Read the psalms and how raw they are on emotions. So get away with God. The second R is reset. You need to get your emotions reset by casting those thoughts out those emotions out to God. Just get rid of your fears, your hurts, your angers, your expectations. Get them out. Just on God. And it may take, get alone where nobody can hear you so that your voice can get loud, your emotions can get out, tears can flow, tantrums can flow, toys can be thrown. I don't know. Maybe not that far. But like just so that you cast them on the Lord. Then, then come together again. And at this point, the last R is risk because it's a risky conversation. It's very difficult to walk into that situation now where it's like you don't know if you're going to be received. You don't know what they're going to say. You don't know. But you're not in there to accuse. You're not, you've dealt with those things. You're there to, instead of like this, you're there to Go like this. Let's go side by side and look at this together. How can we move forward? I'm owning up my end. I, I am just, I'm sick of acting that way. Please forgive me. Whatever it may be that you're expe- expressing. And then, oh God, get us together. 
Notice how God's key in that. The second R of reset, right? God is so key. We've got to cast those cares. They can't be carried anymore. So prayer and counsel and trusted friends are critical to walk through these difficult relational strife situations. I think this fits it. Responsibility, reset, risk. I'm no longer seeking, manipulating. I'm serving, loving. Okay. If we could add two qualifications, if I could put like an appendix on like Crab's book, I would say one is I'm not so sure that Christians need to be need-based. I think we need to be grace-based. In that, just because my spouse's needs are met doesn't mean I stop giving or I only give up to the expectation of needs, I can lavish, I can go way beyond needs, and I should, I should, what does it mean to actually go way beyond what my spouse's expectations are? And to start living in that, living, kind of sighting my sights way beyond just the immediate needs. God, Lord, give me a big heart that can just blow the doors off of this, because you've done that in my life. This also then speaks of not just giving, but forgiving. And so forgiveness. Seven times, Lord? You know the answer to that. I mean, it's just unlimited on how often. The only time I found in the New Testament where you don't forgive is when there's an abuse of authority where somebody plays God in your life, as we saw with sphere sovereignty, and you need to then rebuke them. And if they don't repent, then you withhold that forgiveness. You don't let them have a voice in your life. You are tender-hearted, and you're wanting them to be in your life, but they need to repent of playing God because it's not about you, it's about God. So if they're playing on your conscience, if they're a cult, if they're a patriarch, if they're a tyrant, don't forgive them because it's God's honor that's at stake. And this body is his temple. It's not yours even. So that was last week. That's the only time I've found where actually like you withhold forgiveness. Otherwise, forgive, 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 forgive tolerate, forbear, be patient. <laughs> and just 70 times 7. Lavish. Everybody got the idea of lavish? Okay. I still wonder if we've gotten to the bottom of it yet, though. Because there seems to be something deep about having love in my heart. Something that's beyond thought, even. I can pursue it. I'm commanded to. But it's deeper than that. How many of you men were here in this room at last November's um, men's prayer breakfast? So you witnessed what I count as one of the most remarkable moments that I've seen um, in a testimony from a husband. We have our young adults who are getting married read A Promise Kept, and I told you about that, remember, the first week, about the man whose wife got Alzheimer's onset in their mid-50s, and how it was said that only one out of, I mean, a woman will often be with her man through it, but only one out of 20 men would stick with their woman in this. Women are naturally better caregivers often than men. 
And just men are just, they can leave and be cold and just run off. I've seen it happen with a woman too, so don't, it, there's, it can go both ways, but I'm talking tendencies. But we were in this room when George Carpenter, last November, was asked a question by one of our men. How do you get to the point in your marriage where you can faithfully, year after year, care for your ailing, sick wife? Because George basically wasn't at church for over two years because he cared for Norma. How do you get to that point? And he was looking for, like, maybe some steps, some tips. The man was 99 years old, was dumbfounded. He looked with just a shock look on his face like, like, we're one. Her pain is my pain. It was so unthinkable, like so automatic, so real. That wasn't something you prepare for, something you put thought in. It just is. That was one of the most remarkable testimonies of my life to see what real marriage love looks like. Like, that's love in a man's heart. Where it isn't even a thought. It's like act of the will accompanied by emotion. It's beyond choice. It's an act of the will, but it's an automatic act of the will. It's now become nature. It's become person. It's become is. It's who I am. I am this. And it's unthinkable to be otherwise. That's... I can't picture it better on earth. 80 years of marriage, of faithful marriage. God be praised. May that man be utterly blessed. May his memory, as the psalm says, be cherished and remembered. Praise the Lord, a hundred offspring. <laughs> Not one has gone before him in time. So that, to me, is where we want to get to. And God can give us that love in the heart I can testify that because it's real. A member of our church has such love and finished his days loving his wife of 80 years with that kind of love. Finished their marriage days because she went to be with the Lord just in December, a month later. So all that is to say, when we change this heart, when the tree gets good and the fruit is good, it goes deep, deep, deep. What Jonathan Edwards talks about down to the level of the affections. It actually changes the nature. What is that? I want you to look at a remarkable passage which will lead us to the close of this lesson. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. This is utterly eye-opening. There's a rule in hermeneutics when you interpret the Bible. You let the Scripture interpret Scripture and you stay within a book. 1 Corinthians 8 occurs before 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 8 gives us a proverb. He says, Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Knowledge puffs up. Everybody at an academic institution can testify. Pride comes through knowledge. It's a natural occupational hazard. Love edifies, builds up. Love builds somebody up. Knowledge puffs somebody up. They become arrogant, but love seeks the good of the other and builds somebody up. Okay, I get it. Paul's like, I get it. 
I understand, Paul. No, you don't understand, because then Paul goes on. If anyone thinks he knows something, mark that, knows. That's the knowledge side. If anyone thinks he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. Oh, go to the other side then of your proverb, Paul. You just spoke of knowledge, now speak of love. If anyone loves God, he is known by him. When Paul mentions the word love, isolated, all by itself, love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy, love does not boast, it's not easily provoked, it's not rude, it does not seek its own, right? Love. When he mentions the word love, he is not exclusively saying love for another human being. He is saying love primarily for God. That changes the entire way that we look at 1 Corinthians 13. If I have love for God in my heart, I will be patient. I will be kind. I will not be envious. I will not boast. Nor will I be rude or easily provoked. If I have love for God in my heart, that changes it. Because now all of a sudden, it makes me think that the key to becoming a loving person isn't actually related to focusing on the other, focusing on my spouse, what kind of needs are there. The, the key for becoming a loving person is, first of all, focusing on my God. And we see this testimony in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, we are transformed into the same image from glory to glory. Beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, we are transformed into the same image. If we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, we will be transformed into that image. I don't know of anybody who's born again who are not at some point can't feel when you read Mary and Martha, Mary of Bethany anointing the feet of Jesus, anointing actually his head, and you see pictured in there a year of wages poured out on Jesus from a white alabaster vial and it's poured out, dumped, a pure nard. And the disciples all scoff and get on the waste. But Jesus defends her for doing a beautiful thing and doing what she could and says what this deed, what she has done today will be told in remembrance of her wherever the gospel is preached. Mark is preparing you for the cross when Jesus will take his pure body and it will break and he will take his pure blood and will pour it out. And what he does on that hill in lavishing his love on you and me as undeserving sinners will be told throughout the whole world in remembrance of him. That feeling of love, that admiration, that I get from Mary of Bethany, when I see it, I know why I feel the way I do, because it's beautiful, and it's there to soften my heart, to prepare me for the ultimate act of beauty, the pouring out of Jesus for you and for me. No one who has their eyes opened, their heart opened, who is alive, can look at the face of Jesus and not see the glory of God and then remain the same you will be transformed. That 
is the renewing of your mind, transformed by the renewing of your mind. That will change you, and you will become a loving person because you have just seen what is ultimately lovely. What ultimately moves and brings out our love is what C.S. Lewis never wrote about and couldn't get to, apparently, is the love of appreciation for the glory of God that you can see in the face of Jesus, the glory of God as the crowns are on his brow and the nails through his wrist, and he is suffering for you and for me. As Paul says, the love of Christ controls me, compels me, controls or constrains me. The love of Christ is what dominates my life. Isn't that what Paul said with the let the Holy Spirit be given that we'd be strong to apprehend with all the saints the height, the depth, the width, the width, the breadth to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge to have our eyes open to such a love? There has never been such a display of loveliness. That's chiefly worship-based love. Need-based love can only motivate you so far. Grace-based love is better But you will not have grace-based love unless you have experienced the grace of God through Jesus in your own life. Having your eyes open and tasted and you know God is more than good. He is gracious. And he loved me when I was unlovely. That's how a husband can love a wife when she's not lovely. And how can a wife submit to a husband who's not all that loving? Did not Christ submit himself for us? and suffer for us. Both sides, we can benefit from the picture. So, I'm just going to say it, guys. At the end of the day, love is primarily planted in our heart when we see love. God is love, and when we see love, it is planted in our hearts and is crystal clear in the cross of Jesus Christ, pictured in all its glory, scattered beams. So, yes, question. Yep. And it's because there's ultimately no dichotomy between loving God and loving my neighbor. Because they're made in the image of God, and as I love them, I'm loving them for Christ's sake. I, Alexander Strzok wrote a book on, uh, um, on leadership, Leading by Love, and he made the claim in there, love for people will never keep somebody on a mission field. Not in the way they should. It's love for Jesus. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Love for Christ will keep you. I think the same is true for marriage. Love for my spouse will not keep me loving. The needs of my spouse will not be enough to generate love. It's the love of Christ. And so ultimately, and there, in fact, this woman over there, her chief identity, beyond everything that she is, is she is a gift She's the one gift from Jesus, the one woman God gave to me. That is an utterly unique identity she has in my life. That alone can elicit love for her beyond her loveliness, how God is working in her life, her needs, all those things. But when I start seeing her relationship to Jesus and that I working in her life, pouring out, then she becomes more reflective of God 
and I love God as I love her, all that I think is ultimate. So I'm going to leave that with you. Let's talk about it some more. Let's continue this journey. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, we are thankful for the way that you open our eyes. We're thankful for your word. If you hadn't put 1 Corinthians 8 in front of chapter 13, I don't know that I would have had the, the connection nor the strength. But now it's seen in these other passages that I didn't even get to. So thank you, Lord. If any one of us, Lord, is trying hard based on needs or based on an ideal to be a giver and we're just failing in our love relationships, open our eyes to see who you are for us in Christ and put that love in our heart through his love. We commit it to you in the name of Jesus. Amen.